and it's Kayako under the bed, like resting her head on their stomach, and it's like, ah, like, you're ew, you're so close to me. I can't get away from you. What are ew. you? Ew. Hello, welcome to Guides the Unknown. I'm Kristen. And I'm her little brother, William. And we're going to grip it. We're going to rip it. We're going to roar it. We're going to deliver you a great show this week. Yep. It's going to be perfect. You're going to love it. You will never have heard anything better. That's right. We are going to talk about Japanese horror, also known as J-horror. So I'm going to cover kind of the origins and what may have led J-horror to be the specific-ish niche Whoa. <laughs> that it is. <laughs> and then we're going to talk about some awesome monsters. Yeah, I just straight up have like super sweet like ghosts and stuff. Yeah, um, it's going to be awesome. But before we dig into all of that, Guide to the Unknown, we do this every week. We talk about monsters and pop culture and creatures. It's a fun little spooky party. So if you're into that kind of a thing, make sure that you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts. You can watch this show on YouTube.com slash TalkBomb, and you can make sure that you never miss a future episode by following at GTTUPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you're listening to this and it's already not enough, you need more on top of this, go hit up patreon.com slash gttupod. If you back us at our $4 level, that's the Netherworld Warrior level, you're going to get access to a ton of bonus material that the average normie will never see or hear. Uh, that includes an entire exclusive podcast just for our Patreon peeps. Uh, we've also got merch available right now. If you go to tpublic.com slash user slash gttupod, if you're thinking to yourself, you know what? I'm listening to the show, but it's killing me that I'm not swaddled in it. Go get yourself a shirt. Um, what else? That's right. Well, <laughs> on Patreon, if you are one of our donors over there, one of our Netherworld Warriors, this coming Sunday, we are going to be doing a live stream over there at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where for the first time, we're going to hash out our potential topics for the next month live with you guys. So in front of you, with your input, you can help kind of mold the direction potentially of the show next month and maybe give us ideas and we can just sort of bounce things off each other. So that's going to be this coming Sunday, May 2nd at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, just for people who are members over at patreon.com slash GTTU pod. Yeah. Pay attention to those mm -hmm. people behind the curtain. That's you might right. get to see what's coming down the pike. Yeah, it should be really fun. I'm looking forward to it and it may end up becoming a more regular thing. So yeah. definitely come join us for that. And we'll have a good time. Yeah, for sure. Without a doubt. Um, right, cool. cool. Let's get to it. Okay. So we decided to do this topic. And I thought to myself, when I think of J-horror or Japanese horror, what do I think of that as just off the top of my head? And the first things that I thought of are the American remakes, because we live in America. So that was probably my first entry, entry into it, like The Ring, The Grudge. Um, some others that I forgot existed until I looked them up, like Dark Water and One Missed Call are actually yeah. remakes of original Japanese movies. And also the man manga, or is it manga? Uh, I think it's manga. Okay, the manga artist Junji Ito, who mm. does a lot of really cool horror sorts of things. That's pretty much my entire perspective on Japanese horror. Mine when too. I, I okay. almost think that like... You and I might be considered straight basic on. Oh, on definitely, 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 definitely. Um, but everything that I've ever seen, even if it turned into something that was frequently mocked, like The Ring, um, is the 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 creativity behind it or the conventions within that sort of storytelling are so unique mm -hmm. and so unusual and gripping and emotional and scary. That yeah. it always makes me want to uh, know more. I want like uh, that. Feels like a, a whole like untapped horror, you know, pool for us. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that we've talked about definitely here and there in the course of larger episodes, but we haven't like completely focused our high beams on it before. So I was thinking about that, and then I was like, okay, what do those things have in common to me? Because I think of Japanese horror as being particularly 
particularly interesting, particularly creepy. And I was like, okay, so in what ways, like just within my little teeny view of it, what is Japanese horror? And the things that came to me off the top were um, child tormentors. Hmm. Like a creepy little ghost kid who's oh. after you. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Sort of like the Sadako, mm-hmm. like kid with the long black hair. Yeah. Covering that, their face. Yeah. Yes. That's another big thing, which I'll get to. That wasn't something that I thought of off the bat, but a lot of people associate J-horror with like a little kid or a woman with hair covering their face, wearing all white. And there's potentially a reason for that. So I think of like child tormentors because there's also the kid in The Grudge. I can't remember what his name is, hmm. uh, but I know you know. What is it? Toshio. 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 <laughs> there was a night... <laughs> <laughs> I was watching The Grudge with Bobby and uh, one way or another, it was probably like four in the morning, who knows, but we were watching Toshio, this little boy who every time he opens his mouth, uh, a cat meows, and uh, we just put ourselves in the shoes of being Toshio's stepfather, <laughs> you know, even though he's a ghost, and just being like, right. time to go to bed, Toshio, come on, and for some reason, Toshio only communicates through the lyrics or through the tune of uh, Madonna's Girls Just Want to Have Fun. So he goes, whopper, yeah. yeah, he goes, Toshio has fun. And the stepfather goes, I know, I know, buddy. We'll have fun in the morning, pal. Come on. We got to gotta go to sleep now. I'm Toshio. Toshio. Come on, buddy. I'm <laughs> just like exhausted by this ghost you're supposed to be watching. Yeah, uh, yeah, Toshio. We'll have fun in the morning, bud, is such a parental thing to say. <laughs> it makes yeah. no sense. It's yeah, just, please go to sleep. Just exasperated and like, will this get you? Can this appease you? Well, I'll put on the mining bud, okay? Please be asleep now. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, child tormentors. I also think of this sense of like creeping and paranoia, something kind of on the periphery on its way to get you, Mm. both literally and figuratively. Something you just kind of can't get away from seems like a distinctly Japanese horror thing to me. And then visually, the idea of things literally being dark in tone and kind of desaturated, that might be partially something that was just really popular with movies in the 2000s. But that kind of like blue tint to everything, everything's kind of like dark and gray and shadowy, feels like a little bit of an at least American remake of Japanese horror movie thing to me. Totally, like overly color corrected so that Mm -hmm. everything is sickly. Yeah. And like the contrast is just cranked. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then I realized as a tag on to that, I kind of forgot about it until I was making this list. But I also associate it with sometimes either super dark ideas and tones and or body horror, like that movie Audition that I've never seen. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So and the other thing I knew about it besides these kinds of movies were was stuff about Junji Ito. And I really don't know a whole lot about him. I've seen some of his work. I've never actually read one of his books, like front to back or anything. You've told me that they're really cool, but they're very upsetting. So I haven't gotten into it. Not even necessarily upsetting, more nauseating. Yeah, yeah. very, very gross. The the artwork, um the artwork in those stories, like uh, I think one of his most famous uh mangas is called Uzumaki. It's the mm-hmm. spiral where an entire town sort of uh, oddly falls prey to the concept of a spiral. I've seen that. I've seen like a spiral eye yeah. on a person that looks yeah. really, really cool. And the the artwork is so evocative and so clear and so gross where you see body parts sort of stretching and folding in on each other as a, a human literally is contorted into the shape of a spiral. Uh, mm-hmm. Among a million other things, like the uh, cannibalism, people like, you know, like licking their lips, like disgusting, disgusting, but so scary and fascinating and unique. Yeah, that might be too much for me. I think that's really awesome. And I respect the craft, but I don't love being grossed out. So yeah, sure. Um, so that I mean, that's really the only thing I know about him and that he works in black and white a whole lot. I think he also works in color, but a lot of things are black and white. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if that's a low key commonality in Japanese horror is black and white or kind of an absence of color, because you do think about the, you know, ghost woman or child wearing white with black hair all coming down. A lot of these movies are very desaturated. I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah I, I actually do kind of wonder what that is. That my gut feeling about things like Uzumaki are maybe budgetary, 
Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you'd have to pay a, a, someone to – like a colorist to, to fill in. So maybe it, it saves on the cost of doing it. But you're right. There is like a sort of like stark blacks are black, whites are white. Right. Like yeah. contrast to everything. That's very interesting. Yeah. I, I wonder if it's – you know, a coincidence or it is something that a lot of people are drawn to and then use that way. Yeah. Um, and then when I looked into it further, I saw slash remembered that there are a lot of other things that come from Japan horror wise, especially video games like Silent Hill, Resident Evil, which I know that you're current really currently really into. Mm. And also a game that I don't know of, but looks really awesome called Fatal Frame. Do you know about that? Only a little bit. Fatal Frame is uh, – most of these things are something of a blind spot to me. I'm presently sort of sponging Resident Evil. Right. Um, I've wanted to do Silent Hill for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, and Fatal Frame is one of those things that as they were coming out, I remember thinking, oh, that's a knockoff. But now, right. these days, I'm like, oh, what a novel idea. It's a person walking around with a camera, and you can only see the ghosts through the viewfinder. Right. Um, so that's it plays into that idea that like there could be spirits or surrounding us right this very second we just can't see them. Yeah, I know um, we've talked about that concept a bunch and we both really like that idea. Yeah, very fascinating. I I don't know much about them but like I've straight up like the amount of times I've thought to myself, "Boy, I should go on eBay and buy some Fatal Frame games only to be like, well, I did that with Silent Hill and they're just sitting on that shelf, so maybe I shouldn't." <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, for sure. Unusual restraint, Will. I'm impressed. Uh, I'm trying. (laughs) (laughs) My back catalog, honestly, I've thought, you have no idea how many times I've thought of starting a show that's literally just called My Back Catalog, where I'm not allowed to buy anything new until I go through everything that I've already bought that I have not experienced. (laughs) That would last like your whole lifetime. Oh, a thousand percent. Yes. Yeah. You can't do that. No, it would not work. (laughs) That won't do. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about what th- – those were just my random impressions about what I think maybe distinguished Japanese horror from other Western horror. Um, but I looked into what actually distinguishes it that other people have noticed and kind of fine lines of demarcation. So it differentiates from Western horror in that it generally focuses more on the supernatural as opposed to human serial killers and slashers. Um, There's more suspense and more of a creeping sense of dread. So that was something I guess I I picked up on. And in general, Japanese horror is less about how to defeat a bad guy because after all, a lot of their bad guys are supernatural. So it's not necessarily, I mean, you know, some Western bad guys are supernatural too, but like, an equivalent of Jason doesn't seem to be really present in at least popular Japanese horror where it's at least in beginning movies, like a human entity who you could conceivably defeat in some sort of way. That's not really a super present trope in Japanese horror. Um, A lot is more about how to, it's like, it's kind of grim, which is part of why it's kind of awesome. A lot is just about how to endure living through this thing, tormenting you or how to get away from it. Like you defeating it and just living a normal life is often off the table. Mm. It's just, it's just not really an option. You kind of just have to accept that you're bested because whatever is going on is bigger than you. Yeah. I really, I really love that. Um, one of the best and most interesting things about the ring is that there's no stopping it. There's only passing it on. Right. There's just dodging it for now. Yes, yeah. that, that's a common thing. It's not like you're going to be the one to end this and smash the tape or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's that like maybe you can like get some of the heat off yourself, but it's always going to be out there. Yeah, I love that. And there, I do too. And there's some kind of cultural reasons for that that are kind of interesting. Um, there's also an idea in these movies and books and video games that – there are there are rules to the universe like there are ways that i know you in particular but we definitely like to talk about the rules and mechanics of these things there's an understanding in a lot of japanese horror that there these rules are there and they know they're there and they understand some of them but they also know that they are so beyond them that they can't even really totally conceive of them so there are some guidelines they get but they know they might even not need even have the full picture might not even be able to work within that. And so it's probably pretty hard to beat something that you can't understand, which also feeds into that sense of just inevitability. This Mm. thing is always going on. We know it's adhering to something. 
We think maybe we understand that something, but we might not. There's always wiggle room for us to be totally wrong and we're just screwed. Yeah. Um, so commonly mentioned, as I said before, in articles about J-horror is the trope of women or children in white with their hair covering their faces being like a really prevalent thing. Um, so that's, again, with the black and white. And also, this might come down to being as simple as the fact that traditionally Japanese people are laid out in white kimonos at their funerals. So if somebody is coming back from the dead, they would be wearing white. That's interesting. So it, it may just be as like logical and mechanical as that. Yeah, at least, I, at I, it's origin. I kind of like that. That's almost very uh, sort of like Night of the Living Dead. There's a character that um, is in the graveyard wearing a suit. And mm-hmm. it's because that's what they were buried in. <laughs> like he almost yeah. from a particular angle, it looks like a, some sort of a professional from another mm-hmm. angle. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. That is like, you know, they were dressed up to look their finest because right. they are dead. Right. It's just their funeral suit. There's like nothing more to it, nothing more sinister or whatever. It's just like, yeah, so what you're buried in. Yeah. But everything gets a scarier context when it's like a shambling child or a woman with their hair in front of you, like coming Oh to my you. God. So then, yeah. So then it's going to look freakier. So I wanted to find out about the influence of like Japanese culture in general on their horror and like why Japanese horror and that you can apply this to everything, not just Japanese horror, but it is a particular brand of horror. That's really popular because it's really unique and cool. But I'm just saying you could apply this kind of wondering to any demographic of people anywhere. Oh, sure. Um, But I just wanted to see like maybe what's up with the culture or history that led to Japanese horror being so specific in this way, because there's probably something going on that's a little bit different than what's going on in the West or other places. And that's definitely the case. I mean, that's the case for everything, but you know what I mean? So I found this website. It was so awesome. The article is so detailed. It'll be linked in the show notes, show notes. There's a website that is at horror.dreamdawn.com that's by a video game developer whose first name is Chris I can't remember his last name right now he works for Oculus that Facebook like VR thing Oh sure um and he develops video games and he's especially into horror video games so this article that I found was a lot about Japanese horror video games but it even went beyond that It was so awesome, so detailed, so thoughtful. I really loved that article, and I used it a lot for especially this next section. Hmm. So I definitely encourage you to go check that out. I just like, I thought it was so interesting. So first of all, because Japanese horror has such a supernatural bent overall, the role that religion in Japan plays is kind of interesting because as we've talked about on the show before, like, even though religion is you know, depending on what your religion is thought to be this kind of like pure uplifting thing. It's also a lot of times very centered around death and has kind of occulty elements. And so they're sort of religion and horror are intertwined in a lot of ways. So the main religious practices in Japan are Shinto and Buddhism. And those are practiced sometimes interchangeably and on top of each other. Um, I know that with Buddhism in particular, maybe Shinto as well, it's it's considered religion, but it can also just be thought of as a belief in thought system. So, like, you can be somebody who thinks of your religion as Christian, but also be a Buddhist. Hmm. Like, you can kind of lay it on top of things, and, it, and it's cool. Like, Buddhism, Buddhism isn't really uptight and dogmatic about, like, these are the rules, these are the beliefs, and this is it. And it sounds like Shintoism is probably kind of similar. Um, or just Shinto, I'm not sure. But so neither of them are religions that require sing- singular membership and rites and rituals are done kind of more traditionally than they are done because of major religious implications. So because of that flexibility, Japan has legends and thought processes from two different religions with their own beliefs about life and death to draw from. And that really allows people who pay attention to those things. Cause like everything, there are people in Japan, I'm sure who just don't pay attention to either one of them, Right. but they kind of allow you to like free think and mix and match. And even if you don't pay attention to them, like I would imagine that they seep into the culture in some sort of way, the same way that if you don't pay attention to Christianity in America, you're probably still somewhat aware of the ideas about it. Um, so 
The beliefs for Buddhism about death are that Buddhists believe in the never-ending cycle of death and rebirth, so reincarnation, and that you can only end that cycle when you wake up to the idea that material life and a lot of the things that we care about is just kind of a facade, which is reaching enlightenment. So if you ever reach enlightenment, you get to break that cycle of life and rebirth and just kind of like be done with it at a certain point. So you pair that with Shinto, which seems not to have a ton to say about life after death, except that all dead people can be prayed to and that they'll hear it. So that implies there must be some sort of belief in life after death, because if you can intellectualize it after you're dead, there's got to be something. Um, Shinto also believes that everyone has a soul. And this is very interesting that the soul can get stuck among the living. If a person dies while weighed down with quote unquote excess emotion, or they haven't given a proper funeral. So I think that that's almost equivalent to the idea of having unfinished business. Yeah. Excess emotion mm-hmm. is interesting. Yes. And, you know, this article points out that the excess emotion component proves to be an underlying theme in a lot of Japanese horror. It probably is an underlying theme in a lot of supernatural horror in general, because if something is coming back to like haunt somebody or mess with them, you wouldn't do that for no reason. You're worked up, which you could call excess emotion. Right. Like even the the grudge. That's exactly. a grudge they have. Yes. <laughs> you know, like it's literally holding something against someone even still beyond death. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Exactly. Excess emotion. And then Sadako in the ring or Samara. What is the deal with that? Spoiler alert for the ring. It's that did did their mother drown them in a well? Yeah. It's I. Boy, it's it's been a while since I've watched them, but I think I haven't either. Samara slash Sadako. Whether you're watching the original, like if you're watching Ringu, the Japanese yeah. original, or the Ring, the American remake, I think that character was psychic mm. and being experimented on and exploited, and her psychic abilities were tormenting the people around her, leading their mother to drown them in a well. Yes, that rings a bell. I think that's I think that is right, and so they probably had some excess emotion about that that led them to crawl up out of the well and crawl out of the TVs and stuff like that. Right. Um, So those are the two kinds of main religious beliefs in Japan. And so as far as living in a culture with a lot of religious fluidity, that can lead to a general understanding that the way that the universe works is fluid. There isn't like one big rule to it. And it's also just beyond our understanding. So there's this ambiguity about things that's just kind of lived with in Japan. And that is a great place for horror to spring from. Yeah, for sure. You know, like rules can be a really great place for it to spring from too. But I feel like it leads to extra creativity where you're like, well, it could be like this and I'm not mad about it. And it could be like this. Yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah. Like both of these things could be true and I don't feel worked up about it. It's cool. And we can experiment from there. I think it's it's neat. And it made me think about the way that, you know, their religious beliefs affects like Japanese horror could be kind of similar to the way that like Christianity and like Judeo-Christian values have affected some American horror. And I was thinking about the idea of a virgin being like the final girl at the end of something slash people who have sex in a horror movie being killed is probably traceable back to like Catholicism being obsessed with abstinence and purity and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, um, uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren in the Conjuring franchise, <laughs> you know, being like the... <laughs> The most moral people in the world who, in between helping a family get rid of their demons, they, like, help the family clean their house and talk to the kids about God and, yeah, sing to the children. And, like, Ed is always, like, doing something where he has to wipe oil off his hands. He's always got his (laughs) sleeves rolled up. Yeah, he's doing a bunch of, like, engineering, plumbing, and, like, (laughs) you help your neighbor. Yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, no, like I, I think you're a thousand percent right about that. I think like the, the morality system is uh, uh, the thing that sort of dictates how you perceive good and evil. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, and if even if you don't like subscribe to religion, you know, in your country, it, it ends up being kind of ingrained in things. You have an awareness of that, and that probably kind of seeps in subconsciously, whether you 
believe it or you don't. You're just kind of aware of it. Yeah, that's interesting. It's really interesting. Um, I was so glad that there was an article that was like exactly what I was looking for. I really wanted to know about like culture and how it affected the kind of horror that gets put out or events and how it affects the horror gets gets put out. And I was like so thrilled that this guy had written this thing. This is also where I'm like, it'd be cool to speak to somebody who has studied like like uh, uh, Japanese folklore and horror mm-hmm. uh, or like a horror writer and like pick their brain. Um, because it is just something that like, it's not our background and I am so like in love with horror in every form it takes, but it does seem like there is like, there's such like a stylistic difference, Mm -hmm. um, in the stuff that we're talking about in this episode from, yeah, like you said, like, like Jason. And it is funny too, because I'm, I'm aware of the, like those particular franchises, the grudge and the ring as being the sort of equivalent of Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th to the point that Kayako and Samara from those two movies had a, a, a Freddy versus Jason movie. Yes. And, you know, yeah, yeah, Samara yeah. throws out the first pitch at a baseball game. Yeah, like, right. It is that that big and popular, but it's like apples and oranges in terms of like the positions um, uh, that those stories are coming from. Totally. And it's also, it, you know, beyond just horror, I think it probably just boils down to, you know, cultural differences and things being popular one place and, you know, different yeah. things are popular another place. But that's so fascinating to me. Like, we're all people and it's so interesting that by region, things will be different. I remember when we moved to, it's not the same thing, but when we were moving from Connecticut to St. Louis, people were saying to us like, oh, people are going to be so much nicer there. Like things move a little bit slower there. And I was like, how can that be? Like, we're all humans. I'm a human and I live in Connecticut. I'm, they're a human. They live in Missouri. Like, why are they going to be so much slower? I don't get it. But like, it's true to a degree. It's just that they're like yeah. little cultural differences in pockets by all sorts of things, by geography, just by interests. Like it's all cultures and subcultures and it's, it's just really interesting to me. It's like, so it's so weird. Yeah. It's fascinating. And the fact of the matter is that like, as much as there are those cultural differences, like it's all a matter of degrees, right? Yeah. Theoretically it, it all degrees. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. To drive from Connecticut to Missouri, are you driving, you're driving through the gradient, <laughs> you know, like I, you know, somebody who lives an hour away from Missouri probably doesn't view Missouri to be uh, uh, like, like so different. Yeah. To be so different and an hour away from those people, they don't feel that different and an hour away and an hour away. But then when you look at the ends of the spectrum, they're Mm -hmm. vastly, it's the game of telephone, right? Like, it's like, you know, I say, I whisper something into person one's ear and by the time it goes out there, it's completely different. But along the way, everybody thought it was the same phrase and it's just like, yeah. Uh, So that's the difference of like, go to the other side of the globe and take a look at like what's scary, Mm-hmm. Like like the creative horror coming out of there, and it's so uh, different and fascinating. But it's like, right. man, why don't I feel that way? About why can't I be creative like that? But you're creative in your way. I know, but I yeah. want to be creative in that way too. Especially when I read to you some of like the the monsters that I'm going to tell you about in a bit. It's like, oh my god, this is so cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's 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 really I find it all very interesting in general. Yeah, and just Japanese stuff is really interesting too. Japanese horror, so. You also can't really discount the effect of the atomic bomb being dropped in Hiroshima. Um, the first major Japanese horror movie was called Onibaba. It's from 1964, so pretty soon post-war. And there is this sense of invasion and lack of safety that seems like it started to pick up steam in Japanese pop culture after the bomb was dropped. So that kind of creeping omnipresence of something that you can't really change or do anything about you could also kind of look at the atomic bomb being dropped as something that would be an influence on that as well as the theme of perseverance as opposed to just eliminating a problem Mm. like they really had to like live through something make your way through it and they didn't have like just a singular bad guy or a singular problem to be like problem solved. Like they had to like really live through a horrendous thing. Yeah. So that was also a big influence on some Japanese horror and as well in an aesthetic way where like in, I think it was in that movie, Anibaba, I actually didn't write it down, but I just remember it. Um, they used pictures of people who were killed or hurt 
by the bomb for some of their makeup design. And I think that movie, it may have been a different one. That that fact is definitely in the Wikipedia page that I'll have linked in the show notes. Interesting. But so like a very direct connection to the bomb and also just a thematic connection to persevering. So there are a couple other differences between American and Japanese horror that are a little bit like black, white, whatever, whatever, that are a little bit easier to look at. Um, so American horror often revolves around venturing into the unknown. I found this very interesting, and this is something that was pointed out by that guy, Chris, on the website that I gave before. So in American horror, often you're like entering a haunted house, things like that, as opposed to Japanese horror, which has the unknown encroaching on your own territory. So like Sadako comes out of the TV into your house. Hmm. You know what I mean? Stuff like that. Um, there are also these differences that are like so weird that I never think of, but yeah, it's true. Western horror, and it sounds funny, is often in like dry, crumbling locations, like those haunted houses, cemeteries, things like that. And Japanese horror often plays with the idea of the damp. So like Sadako or Samara as well, the hand in the grudge being in the shower, hmm. um, at least in the American version. And so a theory here is that in the summer, Japan is majorly humid to the point that it almost feels claustrophobic. And so linking that inability to breathe with threatening spirits kind of makes sense. That's and also very the idea that like things grow in like damp small spaces maybe spirits can kind of manifest in those damp small spaces i thought that was so cool that's interesting and like mold as a sort of creeping you better hope you notice it before it's too late it's yes. gonna take hold um exactly that yeah it's growing it's creeping that's mm -hmm. interesting it's awesome yeah that what that's really fascinating I know. So the last thing I'm going to touch on that's going to kind of lead into your topic is a, a little bit of the folklore, not exactly, but the way that these stories kind of got out to people. So um, they had ghost stories, which are called Kaiden, which translates roughly to strange story. And those have been passed on and adapted in Japan since like seven, the year 794. So a long, long wow. time. Yeah. And so, some of those characters uh, of those stories have as well kind of like been passed along known as yokai, which I know you're going to talk about. And that was original. Is that how you pronounce it? Yokai. Yokai. Okay. And so that was originally kind of a catch all term for anything supernatural when that phrase first came about. And then over time and lately it's more specifically about beings and so these stories, this Kaiden and stories of yokai spread more rapidly when printing technology came about and stories could be written down. But another way that they spread largely is through Japanese theater like Kabuki and No. So Kabuki you may have heard of. Um, there's uh, when you say Kabuki, like kind of thick white makeup might come to mind and masks, masks and things like that. And Kabuki was traditionally theater for like everyday normal people. And no is the theater for the higher class. But both of those still often had stories that were grounded in Kaiden. And some of those plays and productions ended up as inspiration for modern Japanese horror movies. So like Sadako from Ringu looks very similar to her inspiration in Kabuki and no plays. Hmm, That's interesting. I know. And so those Kabuki and no plays often contain stories of yokai. So why don't you give us some examples of them? Oh, hell yeah. Um, I straight up just looked up like cool, scary yokai monster ghosts. Perfect. Um, actually, in the group in this past week, um, one of our listeners, Alexander Anderson, shared a post in there from a page that's called Multo, M-U-L-T-O. Mm -hmm. um, and it was about the Japanese yokai. And there were just one of the things like in that um, post was the Rokuro Kubi, the 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 female monster that whose neck can grow long and her head can like snake around. We talked about that way back in episode twenty five. Yeah. Um, but uh, so yeah, I was poking around in there looking at all these awesome, like really inventive, bizarre monsters, and I just sort of like picked a few that I thought were the most interesting to share. Um, uh, but before I really dive into those specific creatures. Yokai, I thought this was kind of interesting. The word yokai um, is made up of the uh, the the kanji. Kanji is like the 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 symbols to build words. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so they are, uh, it's a combination of the, the kanji for bewitching, attractive, calamity, and apparition, mystery, suspicious. So yokai are like, just like, there's a, a wide range of them. I'm going to talk about specifically things that are somewhat dangerous or darkly mischievous, but they can also sort of be benign kind of uh, creatures. Sometimes they bring good fortune. Um, now, having said that, here are some really uh, unfortunate, <laughs> uh, unfortunate monsters. Um, let's start off with the the some of the craziest <laughs> stuff I've ever heard of. <laughs> There's uh, a yokai. A, a Japanese ghost called the the Napara bow, and also okay. please I apologize for my pronunciation. I tried to look up some of the the pronunciation, but I'm sure I'm going to get most of this wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, the Napara bow is a faceless ghost, literally referred to as no face. Um, they usually appear to their victim as somebody they know. Oh God! Only to then erase all of their facial features to scare them. Their goal is to just scare them um it's also i'd imagine it's disturbing to see somebody you know have their facial features just wipe out in front of you yes a thousand percent it's really uh disarming and yeah yeah so uh, a lot of this information that i'm going to share with you comes from yokai.fandom.com it's basically like a yokai wiki mm-hmm. uh and so here's uh how they sort of describe how the napara bow operate a favorite game of the Napara bow is to work in teams where one of them scares a victim who then flees to find another person walking around late at night. The victim frantically relates their story to the stranger until the person replies, they had no face? What, you mean like this? And then wipes their own face off their head. Oh my god! So they were one of them too. You didn't get away from the monster. The person you thought was going to save you is still a monster. They're everywhere. So one of the things I'm curious about in your stories of yokai are noticing those themes that I found. So that kind of taps into an everywhereness, like yes. an inescapability. Yeah, even like uh, even to that point, and this is less about the Napara bow, but of just like the that when you descri- describe like the claustrophobia, that's how I think of the Grudge. There's a scene in the Grudge mm-hmm. where a character is in bed and senses something under the covers and lifts the blanket, and it's Kayako <laughs> under the bed like resting her head on their stomach and it's like ah look you're ew you're so close to me i can't get away from you what are ew. you ew <laughs> i think that's the next line that character says Ugh. uh so here's another quote sometimes a poor man will run all the way home having run into multiple faceless ghosts only to tell his wife what he saw and have her reply oh you mean like this and i i love the phrasing unending it's unending inescapable there's a stephen king ism to it of the phrase the repeated phrase that's a little almost like folksy or playful yeah uh but like is actually like a foreboding or or you know horrible trap um so it's hard to describe um this next concept but this yokai the napara bow might actually be sometimes a different yokai this is tricky there are animal shapeshifters uh, which seem like they are able to turn into the uh, Napara bow, like a tanuki. You know, like what the tanuki is? It's sort of a, they refer to it as like a raccoon dog. I only know it from Mario. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Mario 3, he's able to uh, wear a tanuki suit, which mm-hmm. a lot of people refer to like as raccoon Mario, but it's not yeah. actually a raccoon. It's a Japanese animal called a tanuki. And so... Um, like the Tanuki has like different like folklore characteristics, but in the sort of like yokai sense, they're a shapeshifter. And one of the mm-hmm. things they love to shapeshift into would be a Napara bow to mess with people and be faceless. Um, all the additional stories that were, uh, related about the Napara bow online play out just the exact same way that I told you before. They're 100% of the same, 100% of the time. A fisherman finds a beautiful young woman. She wipes off her face. Then he sees his wife. She wops off her face. A traveler finds a beautiful young woman in the middle of nowhere. Bam, face wipe. Uh, he runs and meets a merchant. Ah, he that guy has no face. All the same, completely identical, except for one. Enter Shurime. Mm. <laughs> Believed to be a type of Napara bow. Okay. Now, we record this show live every week on YouTube.com. 
slash talk bomb. Those of you listening out in podcast land or watching this after the fact, you should join us live. It's fun. We do a little pre-show, a little post-show. We talk to the chat a little bit. Uh, as we were sort of going through the intro to our topics, I could see in our chat, our running chat here, one of our viewers, CBFR, call out Sharime. Mm. Great news, CBFR. Let's talk about Sharime. And by the way, if you watch the video afterward, you can still see the live chat. You can see what happened in there. So you can still kind of just like join the party late if you want to watch the video after the fact. A thousand percent. So, okay. Sharime, <laughs> still faceless, still faceless, still trying to mess with you. It still is, uh, you know, I should also point out that the motive of a lot of this stuff of the Napa bow is the mere act of scaring these unsuspecting travelers is the joy itself. Mm -hmm. They are teasing. They're just trying to catch you off guard. They love to see you flounder. It's the journey, not the destination. Exactly, Kristen. Exactly. Now, Sharime has a very particular flavor of pulling this trick off. This time, they don't need a partner to help get all the scares. They can do it all on their own. Here's a story, again, from yokai.fandom.com. The story goes as follows. Long ago, a samurai was walking at night down the road to Kyoto when he heard someone calling out for him to wait. Who's there? He asked nervously, only to turn around and find a man stripping off his clothes and pointing his bare buttocks at the flabbergasted traveler. A oh my huge... god, did they wipe that? <laughs> <laughs> wipe the this? The disappears? Hey, wipe that! <laughs> a huge glittering eye then opened up where the strange man's anus should have been. It is also apparent that the Sharime may be a type of Napara bow, oh, only it can give a double surprise. First... <laughs> One cheek, then two? Is that the double surprise? <laughs> well, first it shows the featureless face, then it bends over and exposes the eyeball butt, as it says here. The Sharime doesn't have any bad intentions or evil purpose. It just thinks it's fun to surprise people. <laughs> Literally, a creature with an eye inside its butt. It has no face. And it's just having a good time. Just, just having a blast. Booty eyeball blast off. Hey, kid. Super party. Hey, kid. <laughs> it's like a, almost like highbrow to reference uh, American graffiti. I know. <laughs> I know. I've only seen like 15 minutes of American graffiti. And part of that was the beginning where somebody in a car goes, hey, kid. And they press ham on the car and drive away. And Will and I reference that like all the time. Hey, kid. <laughs> so funny. It's a butt. Uh, yeah. Hey, Sharime. An eyeball in the butt glistening Man, in the night that's dedication to a, a bit by the way yeah it really know? is yeah we're really going for it now yeah hey. like was Sharime born with a glittering eyeball in its butt or did it like you know create these circumstances for itself somehow because they knew it would give them the biggest laugh right either way hats off to you Sharime. maybe we it's born with the it. unknown salute you <laughs> we salute maybe you they're with it. maybe it's <laughs> maybelline <laughs> maybe it's Sharime. <laughs> oh hey Sharime, you're gonna leave me. <laughs> Your butthole eyeball, I think it can see me, Sharime. <laughs> <laughs> There's a song on the new Fiona album. What Fiona, Fiona Apple album? <laughs> Fiona album called Shamika, and the chorus is Shamika said I had potential. Sharime said I had potential. <laughs> <laughs> Sharime. If Sharime <laughs> told me I had potential, that is like a total badge of honor. So uh, here's a weird thing that I, I, I found out. Um, it turns out, um, I've been aware of this, but I didn't know much about it. There is a, a game franchise called Yokai Watch. Okay. It is something of, from what I've known it to be, a, a Pokemon competitor. Mm -hmm. You know, Pokemon is all about, you know, it's pocket monsters. You catch them, you train them, you evolve them, whatever. Yeah. Yokai Watch, I knew that it was a bunch of little creatures, but I didn't know what Yokai were. Right. So now realizing that Yokai are spirits and ghosts and stuff, I decided to look up and see if the, the very creatures that I'm talking to you about, do they appear in this very colorful kids game? And so I Googled, is Sharime in this children's game Yokai Watch? 
And I'm not the first person to have asked that question. It turns mm-hmm. out uh, that no, uh, Shirime is not in that game, okay. but also uh, maybe there's a character in there that uh, is sort of a stand-in for uh, Shirime. So let me introduce you to Cheek Squeak. Um, oh my God. There's a character in this video game called Cheek Squeak who has a butt for a face and the artwork I found of it has it blowing out brown smoke. Okay, now, this is definitely a callback. Right? Without a doubt. It's got to yes. be. It's just, it just, it just, it has to be, and it must, it must be. be. Anyway, Cheek Squeak. We'll be checking in on Yokai Watch the Kids game as I continue on through because I have found how they have like sort of kidified these uh, creatures. But that is the first yeah, one the faceless awesome. ghost, Napa who sometimes has an eyeball in its butt. Let's awesome. move on. Let's. This next one is uh, 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 Yoro Gumo. Okay. Uh, known as the Spider Lady. Ooh. I was very excited to read up about this. Straight up a ghost that is in the form of a spider. Okay. Or a spider that becomes a ghost. It's kind of hard to tell. Hmm. Um, it can take the form of a woman when it wants to eat a human. Even when it's in its human form, its reflection will show a giant spider. The name Yorogumo comes from a real kind of spider. In English, that spider is known as the Golden Orb Weaver. Oh, I mean, that sounds kind of awesome. Yeah, I Googled it. And as far I, as spiders go, I mean, I don't really care for spiders. But. I regretted Googling it. I yeah. Listen, I'm not the most squeamish. I'm usually fine with this kind of a thing. But, like, I was sitting down here in the basement, and I was looking at these pictures of spiders. I don't... And, like, I could, like, feel it across the top of my foot, you know? Like, I yeah, just don't I, like that I don't, feeling. I don't like a spider. No, I don't need it. So um, evidently the golden orb weaver spider can grow big enough to catch and eat small birds. Oh, vom. It is no that large, potentially. No here's, way. here's a quote from the Yokai fandom website. These spiders are renowned for their large size, their vividly beautiful colors, the large and strong webs they weave, and for the cruel destruction they wreak on young men. It was okay. then that I realized they must have accidentally shifted from describing the real life spider right. <laughs> to talking about the ghost. It seems that way. It sure seems like they pivoted mid sentence. <laughs> um, anyway, let's stick with the ghost for now. Uh, <laughs> the name means entangling bride okay. or binding bride. Cool. But that's sort of a cover up. That's a modern cover up. The original name is whore spider. Oh, yikes. Woof. No wonder they changed it. Yeah. <laughs> good change. Good edit. Yeah, good change. <laughs> <laughs> Great change. Good change. Good change. Latrine. <laughs> I know. Um, Yorogumo. It's a good change. <laughs> it's a good, good change. change. It's from... <laughs> It's <laughs> for Robin Hood men in tights. Oh my god. Yorogumo live solitary lives both as spiders and as yokai. When a golden orb weaver reaches 400 years of age, it develops magical powers and begins to feed on human prey instead of instinct. So this is sort of that blending of mm-hmm. natural world with paranormal world. They are saying that literally it used to be the golden orb spider. And then it be if it lives long enough, it becomes this creature. It evolves. Yeah. That reminds me a little bit of the giant spider thing in it. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. I didn't think about that, but yeah, you're a thousand percent right. I mean, I think there's a lot of spider lore out there in different cultures and things like that. So For sure. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. Not necessarily connected, but maybe that's like a connecting thread web. Oh boy. Oh boy, or boy. Like that. Yeah. Um, I bet we could do a whole show on icky, yucky bug monsters. Oh, I don't. I really, I don't like bugs at all. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that um, sounds like fun. There's also that musical Kiss of the Spider Woman starring oh. Vanessa Williams in the 90s. Oh, my God. Yeah, that sounds familiar. That. Has anything I to do with, like, scary stuff? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Um, they make their nests in caves, forests, or empty houses and towns. They possess a cunning intelligence and cold heart and see humans as nothing more than insects to feed on. They're skilled deceivers and powerful shapeshifters, usually spending their lives appearing as young, sexy, and stunningly beautiful women. Legend has it that a man was resting at the foot of a waterfall when his feet were bound with a vast number of spider threads. To free himself, he cut the threads and tied them to a stump of a tree, which was then yanked from the ground and drawn into the waters. Oh. This legend 
is repeated about several places, one of which is a place called uh, Kashi Kobuchi. Here, just after the stump is pulled into the pool, the lumberjack or the traveler hears a voice say, how clever, how clever. Like you've deceived me. You, you, you I see what you did there. Mm -hmm. For this event, this area in real life came to be known as Kashi Kobuchi, which translates to clever abyss. So like a folkloric story that actually gave the real name name of the region or that area. Very interesting. Awesome. It also made me think this sort of idea of like the black widow, right? Like Mm -hmm. the, 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 the woman who was going to kill her husband or something like that. Um, and it also made me think of this, the spider witch. Now I think that we've talked about this at some point on the show in the past, but I couldn't find it in my notes. So I'm just going to tell you about it real quick right now. It doesn't ring a bell to me. The spider witch is a character from the ghostbusters video game. Okay. From like a few years back, just released on switch last year where like all the main cast came back and everything. It basically functions as a ghostbusters three of a sort in the video game. There's a character named the spider witch that haunts the Sedgwick hotel where they went when they originally caught Slimer. Mm -hmm. There's some, um, there's some confusion as to whether or not she haunts the 12th floor or the 13th. 13th would be appropriate, right? Like the 13th floor would be scary, but whatever. Yeah. There's sort of a backstory to this person who in the video game, uh, she is just a, uh, she's referred to as having been, uh, a serial killer from the 1920s who would lure men to her room and kill them. She was in a cult. She was in the cult of Gozer that was headed by Evo Shandor, the architect. Hell yeah. And uh, in the video game, you end up traveling to her room, which the the boundaries between the real world and the ghost world are breaking down, so it's all covered in spider webs. And she's a boss fight. She's literally a giant spider body, like almost like a, a, a minotaur, where instead of, you know, a... Uh, or not uh, of um, a centaur. Centaur, yeah. Instead uh-huh. of a horse body, it's a spider body yeah, and a yeah. lady torso. Um, cool. So, uh, yeah, in the game, uh, Harold Ramis ends up commenting when you defeat her that you've just solved a seventy-year-old uh, <laughs> murder case, which is like yeah. very fun and, and ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Evidently, awesome. she killed for the cult of Gozer, and as a reward, she was elevated to become a deity, becoming uh-huh. the spider witch and haunting the Sedgwick. Very fun, but yeah. also very, very, very much like the Yorogumo, the, yes. the the yokai. Yeah, definitely. Like it takes a long time to get to that status. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you have to like earn it, right, or something like that. And um, that's sweet. Yeah, super cool. So uh, now uh, let's go on to another uh, yokai called the Hon Ona, also known as the Bone Woman. Straight up, this is a spooky skeleton person. That cool tricks people tricks men by uh portraying herself as an attractive lady and it sort of is where i started to go like oh a lot of the things i'm looking up are about like women that are tricking you right <laughs> like a right. lot of them they like draw you in yeah you no know? also i think that a lot of times like especially back in the day women were thought of as like kind of weak and non-threatening so yeah. it's kind of a good honeypot situation because you're probably going to be safe or this is going to be awesome and then bam Yeah, I guess so. Super repeating trope in what I'm going to be telling you about. But it was also some of the most inventive stuff I found. Yeah. Um, So yeah, Hone Ona, the bone woman. uh, First appeared in the story Botan Doro from a yokai encyclopedia from 1779, which in turn was derived from a Buddhist Chinese collection from 1666, which itself was a version of a Chinese work called um, the Zhangdeng Xinhua, in 1378. Wow. So this is an old concept, the bone woman. Yeah. Uh, it's said that once she starts seducing men, she sucks the life force out of them to the point where there were, there's nothing but a pile of dust. Awesome. My kind of gal. I know. And here's a story. At night, a hone ona arises from the grave and wanders to the house of her former lover. Her appearance is a great shock to those who had believed her to be dead. This shock quickly turns into such joy that it blinds them to any clues that something might be wrong. Even the Hone Ona herself doesn't know of her condition, as she is driven only by love. She exists as a ghost only to continue the love she had in life. She spends the night 
and leaves in the morning. And this unholy coupling can continue for days or even weeks without being noticed. Each night she drains some of her lover's life force, and he grows ever sicker and weaker. Without intervention, he will eventually die, joining his lover forever in death's embrace. Wow. So there are a couple of kind of the the throughways in this. Um, well, there are things in here that are unexpected given what I originally read of, of this kind of creature, right? Mm-hmm. Like it first feels very vampiric, right? I'm a dead person. I'm a skeleton and I'm going to suck the life out of you. But yes, the implication in this story that they don't even know what they're doing is mm-hmm. really dark and really sad. Yes. The other vampiric thing was that the spider woman would look in a mirror and see herself as a spider. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Instead of like her lady form. Yes. And even in in both of them to that end, there are things of um, an attempt to recognize the truth. There is some sort of an uh, illusion um, to both of them. The spider woman just looks like uh, a beautiful lady. The Mm -hmm. bone woman is actually a skeleton. But if you are paying attention or if you're not deluded or whatever, you might be able to see through it. You also might not. Right. The idea of excess emotion, keeping somebody kind of tethered in the real world is present in this story. Her excess emotion is like love, I guess. Yeah. And wanting to be with a partner. And you usually think of excess emotion as like anger or vengeance pops up a lot. But in this case... It's love, but it's still excess emotion keeping you around. Right. And so that's the conversion process that you go through to become a hone owner. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's 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 really, really interesting. I like yeah, that. Too much. Yeah. Um, evidently, there is a convention in these kinds of stories that someone who's close to the victim uh, will be able to see through the illusion. But mm-hmm. the ghost never realizes her own condition and continues to visit every night, which that is like as, as sort of sad as that is the idea that like, oh, you – why this is just what i have to do this is what i want to do like i don't even think that i'm hurting you i don't even right. know that that's sad but it's also so scary yeah totally. the the sort of like delusion the disconnect from reality is really bizarre and unrelentingness of that yeah a thousand percent um it says a home can be warded with prayers and magic charms against entry by ghosts but they only work as long as the master of the house wills them to so if you get won over by the Honona, your charms aren't going to work anymore. Yeah. Uh, as her body decays further, her enchanting allure only increases. And eventually, most men succumb and let her into their homes one last time, sacrificing their own lives to the ghost of the woman they loved. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, one of those earliest stories that I referenced, the Boat and Doro from 1779, goes like this. There was a young man named Ogiwara uh, Shinojo who is wandering around at night and who meets a young woman named O Tsuyu. She carries a red peony lantern, peony being like the flower, like a flower mm-hmm. lantern, um, and he immediately falls in love with her. Every evening, they now meet each other for love and to sleep together. The overly curious neighbor sneaks secretly to the bedroom of the couple to observe them. When the light of the bedroom falls onto the couple, the neighbor nearly dies in shock when he recognizes that the sleeping Shinojo shares his bed with a moving skeleton. That's awesome. Awesome 300-year-old horror story. Yeah, that'll teach you to peep, too. Oh, Oh, it'll teach you to peep, all right. That'll teach you to peep. Yeah. Don't be peeping. <laughs> so Leave th- your neighbor to their business. Yeah, exactly. Leave me alone, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Peeping neighbor. In uh, uh, It makes me think this story, the Hone Ona. It's very It Follows. Mm, yes. Um, in a way. There's a whole thing in the movie It Follows where, like, if It catches up with you, it's basically like a sort of, like, STD curse. Yeah. And so it will celebrate you to death. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's also kind of a succubus thing. Like a succubus is like a sex ghost. Yeah, totally. Totally, totally. It also made me think of that one episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark called The Tale of the Dream. What? (laughs) Where Are You Afraid of the Dark got real grown up for one episode. There's a sex ghost. (laughs) The Tale of the Sex Ghost. Yeah. You're like, oh. Yeah. Okay. When that episode ends and they go back to the campfire. Everyone left, and it's just the storyteller being like, guys, what, you didn't like? Oh, come on. And us at home being like, isn't this Snick? 
Come on, that story is badass. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, there's an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark called The Tale of the Dream Girl, where a guy is being haunted by a girl that essentially is is being like, I miss you, I love you, come back to me. You have to come back to me. But she's plainly a ghost. Yeah. Sometimes, I think early on, he thinks she's stalking him. And then he realizes, oh no, this is like an unrelenting spirit that has deluded itself into thinking that we're soulmates or something like that. And I almost don't want to spoil where that goes for people who don't know it. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I don't remember. I'm going to spoil it. I'm going to say it. Uh, yeah. Uh, apologies, but this show has been gone for 25 years. So it's this character, Johnny, uh, who, uh, you know, he's going, like cool 50s dude, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. 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 He's like a greaser kind of looking dude. He works in like a bowling alley and yeah. he's struggling and like, he feels like ignored and nobody really talks to him. And the only person that he really interacts with is his, his, uh, little sister. And then he starts being haunted by this girl who who died a long time ago they eventually find out and is insinuating that she wants him to be with her and what does that mean is that like joining me in the grave is that death is that killing me and uh the twist at the end of the episode is that she the girl the ghost had died in a car accident when her car stalled on some train tracks she died in that car with her boyfriend and he came back from the grave they both did but he didn't remember the accident. He didn't remember anything. He didn't realize. And the reason why everybody ignores him and nobody really talks to him is because he's a ghost. He's been a ghost the whole time. Yeah. And she actually is the love of his life. Mm -hmm. And so he finally acknowledges that. They meet together in the grave. He says goodbye to his quote-unquote little sister and goes off for a sort of bittersweet happily ever after with the yeah. person that had been haunting him. Yeah, and it yeah. it's it made me think of that, which then even looking into that episode, people – claimed that that episode may have inspired the sixth sense the movie which i don't think is necessarily true but it's interesting <laughs> I mean, you know it's kind of a similar storyline yeah i didn't know i was way, a ghost so it's not terrible yeah yeah i heard that the original title for the sixth sense was i didn't know i was a ghost i was a ghost yeah huh yeah, i i heard the same thing will so True. the hone ona who's a skeleton that sort of is a succubus is gonna suck the life force out of you is in that kid's game yokai watch Okay. As a character named Dazabel. Oh my god. Oh my god. How do they kidify this? It is uh they turned it into a sort of she just wants to be your friend really hard. I, I don't even know like the actual characterization of it. Yeah. But it's like a definitely feminine mm -hmm. sort of figure with a bow and a dress and carrying a pink umbrella, but it's a skull face. Right. Like so a, I guess they're a bit of a charmer, both with some scare to them. Dazabel. Dazabel, that's so funny. <laughs> what they turned that scary sex ghost into. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's homogenized for the kids. Exactly. All right, I've got one teeny, teeny, teeny little guy left. It's just a sort of almost a fun factoid rather than anything else. Um, I learned about something called the Jinmenju, uh, which is known as the human face tree. Um, oh. literally a tree where the fruit that grows on it looks like human heads and they yeah. are laughing. They're just Ugh. vacantly staring faces laughing. And if they laugh too hard, the fruit falls from the tree. Awesome. For those of you who know what the following is, this is sort of a mind blower. This became a Pokemon, not a, not a yokai watch character, but an actual Pokemon named Execute. Which I thought growing up was literally a Pokemon version of a pile of eggs. Yeah, that sounds like an egg thing to me. Right? But yeah. those eggs, when they evolve, turn into something of like a coconut tree, which is bizarre to me. I don't know why an egg creature would evolve into a coconut tree. Yeah, but weird. now I realize what it is. Those things were faces and they were seeds. When planted, they become a Jinmenju, a tree that grows fruit that looks like heads. That's Which, awesome. How insane is that? That's crazy. How crazy is that? So weird. That um, reminds me of the creepy trees in The Wizard of Oz. The, you know, the apples don't have faces, but the trees do. They're very scary. Yeah. Oh, my God. So scary. I did not like it when they were like, how about what if somebody came along and pulled fruit off of you? Me like, neither. <laughs> That's like one of the scariest parts of that movie. Well, leave me alone, you tree. Yeah, you tree. <laughs> leave me alone, you stupid tree. <laughs> there you go. That's just a bunch of like cool, weird yokai.
Excellent. Thank you, Will. Oh, thank you. Thank you. What a ride. This was a fun one for us. I hope you guys enjoyed it. That takes us to the end of another Guide to the Unknown. If you want to keep up with us, you can follow us on social media everywhere at GTTUPod. As we mentioned at the beginning of the show, we would love it if you would support us over on Patreon.com slash GTTUPod. And when you do, if you do it at the $4 a month or more level, then you get a bonus episode of the show every month, plus other extras just here and there on top of that as bonuses, including the live stream that we're going to do this coming Sunday, May 2nd at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to discuss our topics for May. So please come and hang out. We'd love to hear what you have to say. And we may or may not use them, but it'll be a fun hangout. Yeah, exactly. You get to sort of like uh, get a peek at a little guide to the unknown planning sesh. Yeah, totally. which is super fun. So definitely hit that up. You can also join our Facebook secret society to chat back with other people who watch and listen to the show. Hey, it happened this week. Alexander Anderson posted that um, that yokai thing and right. it ended up on the show. Conversations from the group might end up on a future episode. So do that by going to facebook.com slash groups slash GTTU pod. Hey, you can also leave us an Apple podcast review to share with the world your love for Guide to the Unknown. We love it when we get to read new five-star reviews from people out there. You can also review us on places like Stitcher. Um, I believe Facebook has a place to leave reviews. Podchaser is certainly a new growing community for people that are into podcasts. Um, and it, it, it sort of boosts our reputation out there around the world and it gives us something to, uh, look at when a new one pops up and, and smile about it. It makes our day. Uh, so please consider doing that. Uh, if you want, you can also chat with Kristen or myself online individually. Right. I'm at Chillin' Kristen on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I am the Myth Traveler. So thank you all so much for hanging out with us. We will be back next week for more spooky old stories. But until that time comes, we must travel. Back to the netherworld. Go wave. She sucks the life force out of them to the point where there's nothing but a pile of dust. Awesome. My kind of gal.